We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, my aunt. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. From here, I get a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. The more state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain's conferring with someone. Can't quite see who. Oh, yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now, now they've parted, and the professor moves around one side, studying the object while the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. Flag of truce. If those creatures know what that means, what anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Lord, they're turning into flames. Now the whole field's caught up by the woods, the bars, the, the gas tanks, tanks of the automobiles spreading everywhere. It's coming this way now, about 20 yards to my right. You just heard a small sampling of the well-known broadcast that broke the nation, and which is the inspiration for today's episode of Reader Watch, an audio phase podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Caleb Johnson, and joining me once again is my good friend, Ken Fay. Hey, Caleb. Hey, everybody listening out there. The War of the Worlds is just one of those stories, right? I mean, we're going to get into it, but oh man, it has like everything in it, and it just kind of launches a whole sci-fi genre. Yeah, and I'm really glad that you're able to join me for this. Oh, me too. Me too. Even though I think it was the end of our last, uh, my interview with you, uh, I think it was a part two, the end of part two interview I had with you, which was great. We just started chatting, right? We were just starting chatting about movies, I think. And uh, War of the Worlds came up. And you, you were talking about doing a dramatic read. I thought that was such a great idea. And there you are. Yeah, and here we are, two episodes in. I just released the uh, uh, second episode of my reading through the war of the worlds and actually i the original plan was to just do one chapter at a time but some of them are a little bit shorter so in this latest episode you get two chapters perfect bonus so we've got chapters one through three so far over on audio face uh so if you get a chance go ahead and check that out and for those who don't know who ken Fei is i have a wonderful interview with him as he mentioned uh, that you can go check that out where he talks about his career in filmmaking and as an Emmy Award-winning producer and what story really means. So now that we've had that little introduction and we know that today we are talking about The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, let's set the scene real quick for that year. What, what was going on during that time frame that H.G. Wells was writing The War of the Worlds? So the year is 1897. Poverty, and this is in Europe, poverty and hunger were common. Cities were crowded and deadly diseases were widespread. Religious conflicts were common and religious dissenters were persecuted. It's a crazy time. Now, thousands therefore fled Europe for America, which really wasn't doing that much better during this time frame. But that was, that's what was going on uh, during H.G. Wells' time. About 1897-1898 is whenever these books were released. 97 was uh, it was picked up by Pearson Magazine in the UK and by Cosmopolitan Magazine in the US. The novel's first appearance in a hardcover 
was in 1898. So it just kind of depends on what medium you were reading in is when uh, the book came out. Uh, and it was published by William Heinemann of London. So you've read the book, H, uh, The War of the Worlds, correct, Ken? Yep. Yep. I'm a fan of H.G. Wells' writings. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, What's it's, your experience with reading the book? You know, it's, it's really future thinking. Um, the way he wrote, the, the way he presented the story, the way he told the narrative, you know, kind of set, you know, this is what's happening today. Everything is good. And then there's that certain something that happens where something's different. And H.G. Wells was a master at that, whether it be War of the Worlds or The Time Machine, right? Another great novel that he wrote. But they're all future thinking. Mm. It's like he's a futurist, you know? Like he looks, he's looking into a tiny little spyglass into the future, right? And he's like, boom, this is something that could happen. And and based on that, Caleb, what you're talking about in England and during that time, there was a lot of, there was a lot of unknown, right? There was a lot of unknown. I don't know what uh, possessed him to write this story specifically for War of the Worlds, um, but I know that he wrote it and I can speak to the next phase of this production as that book was then bought by a man named Jesse Lasky in Paramount Studios in okay. 1924. He bought the book from the H.G. Wells. And uh, he had it at Paramount Studios in California, right? And uh, he kind of sat on it for a while, just kind of sat at his desk, you know, but he, he wanted to do something with it. But you know that, it, I don't know if you know this, but it was H.G. Wells's son, Frank, that wanted to do a film huh. of the War of the Worlds, right? But his dad, you know, H.G. Wells said, son, this isn't, this isn't going to work. Who would be interested in something like this? Um, he actually said that, right? And he goes, it's set in a time period that cannot change. There's no way to bring this story to date. And uh, That's it just kind of sat there. But there were there were people that wanted to do the film um, that kind of came along and said, like yeah, Ray Harryhausen, um, you know, uh, Alfred Hitchcock even. They wanted to do the yeah. movie, and it, what they did, but they didn't own it. It was owned by Paramount Studios. So that's kind of a neat little side trip where there's a story for the story yeah yeah well then you know what happens of course and this is something that you're doing a wonderful job with too is 1938 and that changed everything so what happened in 1938 yeah it was right around october 30th 1938 so it's right around halloween which is one of the reasons why we're doing this broadcast right now right here we are almost halloween um orson this isn't wells. on purpose at all <laughs> no 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 this isn't figured at all this is just happens like this right well orson wells right he was 23 years old he was at the mercury theater company yep. right and he decided to update he updated the hg wells's 18th century science fiction novel for radio and so what he does is he goes on the air in 38 right um in the evening and he starts into his broadcast and the way it's told you know he does a disclaimer at the opening and he does a disclaimer at the end Right. Saying that, hey, this was just a, a, a Halloween boo <laughs> from Mercury Theater to you. It is Halloween. But people weren't catching on to that. Either they didn't hear it, but they were hearing this. They tuned in broadcast. late, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah. And so here we are in 1938 and Orson Welles is doing this amazing broadcast. And the way it's done is he cuts into like an orchestra. He cuts into commercials. He cuts back to a, a news reporter in the field. And he totally updated H.G. Wells's story into a 1938 mentality and setting. He uses New Jersey as a place where the aliens first land, right? And he brings this yeah. thing to life and people started getting freaked out, like scared, like legitimately, like we're in being invaded by aliens. And uh, no. that just- Wait, real quick. So wow. you said it was updated and, and it was he placed it in New Jersey. Yeah, it started there. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in the 2005 version of the movie, but directed by Steven Spielberg, it was located in New Jersey as well. Ah, I believe. All right. Because and then in the book, it's 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 London, right? That area, and then so there's a little bit of a pull a pull from the book, pull from the yeah the the radio broadcast, and how these movies have been updated and then presented to to oh, yeah. the, a new audience. That's interesting. That's great. And you know, in the 1953 film um, War of the Worlds, which was really the first foray into science fiction telling, you know. Uh, World War yeah. II is finished, right? There are a lot of Westerns. There's a lot of movies about, you know, war and stuff. The sci-fi genre was coming into its own. And it was George Powell uh, who has produced that. And George Powell was making amazing uh, animated features in Holland at the time, right around mm-hmm. 38, you know, right before when the Germans were, you know, doing Earth and the Nazis were coming to power. He was in Europe making animated films and he was making films about invasion, right, of Holland. And mm-hmm. so... He's a person of the time. And anyway, he comes to the States and, and then he produces, he takes on the War of the Worlds script that, remember, was sitting in a drawer since 1924, right? At yeah. Studios. He gets this script and he he loves it and he starts to piece it together and he starts to infuse that. Now, when he made the film in 53, um, it was really, he set the setting in California. Um, they mm. used um, Los Angeles, um, as a setting, um, but not the town of Los Angeles necessarily, but they use LA as a setting. And because it's a city, a live city, right? They would often shoot on Sundays when it was quieter. So they had more control of the streets, mm-hmm. right? Especially to make it look like it was abandoned toward the end of that 1953 right. film. And they used a uh, Studio 18, which was a, a large okay. studio where they built miniatures into, which miniatures, I'm talking uh-huh. about building miniatures that were still like eight yeah. feet tall, right? So they had a perfect rendition of Los Angeles built in this in this set. Um, and then they also went into Arizona for part of the film that they filmed where they they recorded a lot where the military was inactivated and in, in the film. Well, that military activation in the film in 1953 was actually the National Guard. The tanks that are rolling in there, the trucks, the Jeeps were actually there in Arizona. That's where the, the group was gathered. And so they actually used the actual military to run around on set basically. And the actors had to run in between tanks and trucks and all sorts of stuff um, when they made that part of the film back in 53. Yeah. So now there's a correlation to that in the uh, 2005 film, right? With uh, Tom Cruise, there's a scene where there's national guardsmen at the end of that film too. Right. And they're shooting the rocket and they're shooting it at the, at the, uh, the big tall creatures, right? The, the ships. Well, those are actual national guards. The tripods too. Yeah, they were using National Guardsmen yeah. for that as well. Um, so it's just such an interesting thing to see how this this story, this book, and how it was made has just gone through all these machinations, you know? Yeah, no. So I was looking on IMDb because we were you mentioned where H.G. was a son wanted to turn it into a movie, and you're like, this isn't even like a like a story that people would want to hear. Yeah. And I'm scrolling through it. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 different versions of the War of the Worlds that have been done over the years. From movies to stage plays to TV series. This is obviously a topic and that has found its way into like the American heart and the interest of like it's captured America's creativity and interest in such a hard way that he obviously had no idea was going to be the case. 
Yeah. H.G. Wells had no idea this was going to go this way with this storytelling. Right. And when you think about it too, and I just bring this up, but the time machine, I mean, like, right, right to the back to the future, any other time travel. Right. I mean, the idea of looking forward into the future. I mean, what is it about this story? Do you think Caleb that resonates in war of the worlds? What do you think of, what do you, what do you think the psyche is? Well, like you mentioned before in, um, 1938, like what's going on during that time. Mm. Right. We've got all of these wars. We've got Germany and all of this. Like it, it's we're going through so many times and wars as as a nation and as a world where, you know, that is a pr- very present and common fear in the minds of so many people. And then you throw in the idea. It was like, what if we weren't restricting this world war to just humanity what if something came from outer space what if something came that we have no experience with how would we face that and that that i mean it was a very very present fear in, in a lot of people and i think it just it kind of made its way into to the arts into to the writing and to the films comics books you know whatever of what if something came from mars or came from outer space you know in a, in a wild way, the War of the Worlds takes it off of our planet, of course, you know, no pun intended, of course, but it does. But it, it, it brings us together as humanity against a common threat, right? Yeah. A threat from off world. So all those things happening on our planet, we can kind of put down for a second, weirdly enough, and then turn our... Unites us all to one common of, cause. Kind yeah. of unite us in a way, right? I mean, that's part of these stories is that they kind of do that. And, you know, there's been some stuff happening in our world in real life that has united groups of people of things you know we can fight all amongst we want each other but if someone else comes along yeah. you know and in this case they're aliens from mars so it's kind of yeah. like that survival thing right i think that genre that that storytelling that narrative of you know humankind versus something else you know that's interesting you mentioned things that unite us during like war times and, and disasters is and you might be able to speak better to this but I remember hearing stories of Christmas. I don't remember which war it was. You'll have to correct me on this. Oh, sure. Um, Where during Christmas in the trenches, Mm -hmm. both sides have been fighting each other all day long for for years. and, And all of a sudden Christmas comes and they put down their swords, they put down their, their guns and they go out into the neutral zone and they're playing soccer and they're partying and they're having a good time celebrating Christmas yeah. as just humans, just humanity. And then a couple hours later, they're back to shooting at each other again. It's just a very interesting thing how certain things can unify us and, and bring us together, just even just for a moment. Yeah, and what you're talking about um, is called the Christmas Day Truce, uh, Christmas Truce of 1914. It was World War One. Thank you. Yeah, no yes. worries. Yeah, World War One, And it was... Um, it was on Christmas Eve, uh, German and British troops along the line in some areas uh, stopped fighting and then came together and joined hands and actually played even a game of soccer um, yeah. out there. And it, it lasted for a few days across no man's land. And then, of course, the war came back on and everyone had to go back and okay. do their thing. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's an amazing example of of that sort of a thing in that way. Right. I mean, when you you don't you don't really need to make stuff up there's so much real life history that is a narrative that's just so compelling about the nature of being a human on this planet. Right. 
And, uh, and that's one of them, you know, but there's something about that. There's something about coming together as, as a group and having to overcome the great odds. Right. And then in the case of the war of the worlds, you know, that I can speak to the 1953 film this way is that there was no chance for humankind to beat the aliens. And it wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't the humankind that was able to win in the end. It was actually in the 1953 film, which may be in the book too. And I believe it is, was a, um, it was a virus. Ironically, here we are in the, in the, you know, with the pandemic we're in, but it was the virus. It was a, it was a bacteria (laughs) in our earth's atmosphere that was put there since the beginning of time. And uh, it's that bacteria that the aliens couldn't handle. And that's what killed them off. And that's what saved mankind. And in the film, 1953, yeah, they actually say at the end, in fact, there's a line where after all men can do had failed, they were destroyed and humanity was saved by the little things which God in his wisdom had put upon the earth. And that's how that film ends. And they're saved from another, they're saved because of that. That Microorganisms. Yeah, that was such a cool line. Yeah. So, yeah, as we're getting kind of back on track as far as like what the purpose of this podcast is, is so we're comparing the 1953 version of The War of the Worlds to the 2005 version uh, and then how those stack up with each other. It'll be a little bit more of a comparison of the movies and then what we remember the differences being to the novel. So just making that clear. All right, I'll, I'll kick in with the 53 film. I kind of, I was just kind of talk through the opening of it and how it kind of comes together. And I can stop at any point if you want to interject and talk about the 2005. Yes. All right. Yeah. So Caleb, in the 1953 film, War of the Worlds, right? It starts in Southern California. Um, okay. And it's a, there's a, um, a well-known scientist is, uh, and he's atomic scientist. Now remember back in 53, the atomic age is a real thing. And the Cold War was happening, yeah. you know. Very so they have an atomic scientist, thing, yeah, yeah, and he's fishing with his colleagues. And there's this large object that crashes nearby, and the the name of the town is Linda Rosa, which I don't know if it's a real town yeah. or not, but it's kind of cool. Um, and at the impact <laughs> site, he meets he meets a science instructor named Sylvia. Mm. So he meets the, he meets the, uh, the 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 female heroine there, gotcha. um, and her uncle, who's a pastor, Pastor Matthew, um, and then. Mm. They, they, they go there, they go to the site, this thing crashes, the, uh, the, the National Forest Service finds the scientist right in the woods with his friends and, and he goes, something's crashed nearby, you have to come and check it out, you know, and so he goes and he goes there and it's too hot to touch, you know, that kind of thing and people are gathering around it. Well, anyway, they leave these three guys to hang out and see if anything happens and make sure that no one else gets near this thing is how that film kind mm. of kicks over. And as the three men are standing guard on the site, um, the rest of the town, it looks like in the film, have all gone to this, you know, square dance in town. They're all kind of going to town and having a good time. But it's a chance in the narrative yeah. for the uh, for the doctor to get to know Sylvia a little bit, you know, socially. So that's how they move yeah. that along, right? Now the three men are standing guard at the site, and then something starts to happen where the round hatch starts to unscrew by itself, and you hear that. Sound. Are the people like present? Are there people around the device when that's happening? Yeah. Just the three men that are on guard late night. Okay, just the three. Okay. Yeah, and they see this thing start to unscrew, and you hear that sound of the unscrewing of the top of, you know, and then uh, so they kind of approach it with a white flag, and this little, hmm. this little like they call it a cobra <laughs> eye, just kind of comes up okay. and out of the the mound of dirt, 
and a cobra eye has mm. these three you know it's it's a uh, <laughs> red uh green and blue kind of like the early technicolor colors but it's like in this manta ray kind of cowl and it just comes up That's out of that object yeah and so they're approaching it and they're like we bring you peace you know we're here you know you know so they're trying to move up toward it well sure enough that thing obliterates them it just kind of shoots a death heat ray and they obliterate into nothing um essentially um the special effects for that was an acetylene torch they actually used and they actually used the fan to blow it <laughs> so a lot of the f- oh, effects back awesome. in 53 just as a side note were done on Very site practical. as it was happening or you know posted in later but a lot of it was some of the fires that caught on and everything were were set fires that had to happen at a certain time and it was just such an incredible yeah. you know time to make film too right? yeah. yeah there was no so, cgi okay, so, like we have yeah, yeah. so yeah. we're at the point where the aliens have arrived um yeah. first contact has been made mm-hmm. yeah um so well, you made a point about when the uh the alien comes out like a cobra eye and it has three colored eyes. Uh, you said red, green, and blue. Yeah. In the book, there's an interesting moment where in the first chapter towards the end, uh, the main character is out on a walk with his wife. They hear the trains off in the distance and like the, the whistles and everything. It sounds like a, a lullaby because of the distance. And she, the wife makes a point of pointing out the lights of the train that are red, green, and a, a, I believe blue, huh, and I'm it's so inter- so it's an interesting like foreshadow to what is about to to come out. So that was an interesting point. Um, cool. But to backtrack to the beginning of the movie, how the or the or the book, how the book opens up, um, there's this whole, and I believe both movies have this as, as well, is that narration at the beginning of we are being watched from thousands of miles away and as if we were being studied like the euphoria underneath a microscope and moving about and without any understanding of what is watching us right so morgan freeman does the narration in the 2005 version i don't know who who did it in the in the, the 53, 53 was uh sir cedric hardwick did the oh, wow. narration but it's the same opening awesome. it's the same yeah. like it was in, in the 53 film it's just, it's matte paintings by an astronomical mm-hmm. artist actually who was famous who depicted the solar system and it's the same oh, thing awesome. we're being watched from these you know and their their world is dying in mars basically yeah and yeah so to, it's, it's setting the point of like evolution and how the different planets have evolved at different times and how mars is cooling off while earth is still warm and why they would need to leave mars and come to a warmer planet move sunward as the book says um yeah and, in the, and the thing about 53, which was interesting too, it yeah. sets it in a time period. They actually have uh, black and white footage of, of World War II, stock footage to show oh, a montage of destruction showing the world um, what was happening. And then they break into all the wars. Right, because the book says, like, would, do we, are we such a, a race that we could um, blame them mm-hmm. right. for coming to war and taking over when we are, are we such a species that we, you know, have had all these these wars even on these what we would consider lowlier creatures uh, all of the destruction and war that, that we've done would we blame the aliens for doing the same mm-hmm. thing so an interesting point that they brought yeah. up so the 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 book then continues on um everyone has been seeing these explosions on mars these eruptions 
They don't know what it is. Different theories, um, asteroids hitting it or gas, you know, explosions and things like that. The the main character at whom we are going through the story as uh, has a theory that, you know, there is life on Mars and that those were the the forming of the great gun that they were like the smelting of the great gun that was eventually going to be shooting things towards towards Earth. Um, and then one morning there is uh, this asteroid streaking across the sky and different people saw it at different times and uh, had different points of view. Some people said it was like a made a hissing, sizzling sound as it flew by and others it had like a green trail following behind it. Was any of those visuals like in, in the original 53 movie? There were, yeah. Um, not the not Mars necessarily with the with the explosions, but they showed the, uh, yeah. you know, comet just swinging down right into the countryside so they show that kind of blue tail comment gotcha. getting the countryside which the 2005 movie done by steven spielberg that whole <laughs> beginning and arrival scene which i will get to momentarily is totally mm-hmm. different um but just as intriguing and, and entertaining um but as as far as the comparison to the novel totally totally takes a, a left turn there the Asteroid finally makes impact. One guy finally decides um, to go see if he can find it. Arrives there. And there's this huge crater in the ground. Certain areas of the field are on fire. Um, And then all of a sudden, like, there's this crusty thing surrounding this, what he knows to be a meteor. But it, it is, like, oblong and not spherical like most meteorites are that's his first uh point that he he makes is that it's shaped differently it's got all these things crusting on it and then it starts to flake off and on large pieces fall to the ground and and then all of a sudden he notices that the top like you mentioned is unscrewing Mm. and there's knocking or movement sounds that he that he hears from the inside and he he compares or he uh uh connects that to the thing just cooling off uh like the when metal cools off it makes these creaking noises so that's what he's kind of connecting those sounds to not thinking that the thing is potentially hollow on the inside but then he notices that the top is unscrewing because there was a dark mark that was towards him and now it's it's away from him so it continues to unscrew he thinks that there's people inside because there's knocking so he's like you know stay here i'll go get help because it's too hot and uh, he takes off running towards town and people think he's crazy because of the story that he's telling about somebody inside of this asteroid that's just landed out in a field somewhere. Uh, he finally finds like a, a friend of his and he says like, hey, there's something on the field. It just landed and there's somebody inside. And they go back to investigate further and there's no more sound. There's no more movement. Nothing else is happening go back to the town. They send out a broadcast of the different news uh, companies and different articles are coming out and people are hearing the story of, you know, a, a message from Mars and things like that. And they're going out to see these dead aliens out in this field. And they're met with just, there's nothing there. It's just this, this meteor basically. Um, and so everyone's just kind of waiting for something to happen. So that is where we're at in the novel. In the 2005 movie, you've got Tom Cruise, just a regular guy working a job, like a deadbeat guy, 
divorced from his wife, he's got two kids. He shows up late to pick him up, and uh, he's got him, I guess, for the weekend is kind of the story that they're telling. And shortly after that, there's this storm that starts to to happen, and there's, like, lightning, but no thunder. He makes a point, he's like, where's the thunder? He sees all these lightning strikes everywhere, but there's no thunder. He's like, that's really weird. And one lightning bolt like strikes in their backyard and his daughter's like worried and scared that it's going to happen again. He's like, oh no, don't worry. Lightning never strikes the same spot twice. And as soon as he says that, like three, four, five more strikes of lightning hit the exact same spot again. And things are exploding and catching on fire. And it finally just stops. Everything goes just goes silent. And he goes out and he... There's a, a crowd of people gathering around this hole in the middle of the street. And uh, they're like, yeah, it was the craziest thing. Like, I'd never seen lightning strike so many times in the same spot. All of a sudden, the ground starts to move and crack and like look like tectonic plates shifting. And this whole, it was this beautiful shot of the this church just moving to the left and the light beam shining through the steeple and just the whole front of it falls as then this tripod is what they call it rises out of the earth and destruction ensues so that's where we're at in the comparison in the novel and the 2005 version of the world worlds so go ahead and take it away from the 53 version ken so in in the 53 version um those after those three men are disintegrated when that that just kind of that manta you know head comes out and disintegrates some of the three eyes there um then what happens is the the marines show up um and they surround the crash site and reports start pouring in from all over the world that these things are happening all over the world and they're destroying you know cities Hmm. um and then there's a point where the marines surround the area they have everything on and these three uh war machines essentially emerge from the cylinder and they're these big manta ray looking mm-hmm. things with that same long neck and that cobra eye that just sits above them. Very, very ominous. And these things emerge from, yeah. from the cylinder. And there's one character in this story named Pastor Collins who um, attempts to make contact with the aliens. So without, without anyone knowing, he's wandering out into the field approaching the alien spacecraft um, and he is talking about, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and all of that as he walks toward the spacecraft and mm. he gets disintegrated essentially. So the Marines open fire, um, but they're unable to penetrate the force field. Um, and then the aliens start to counterattack with their heat ray and, um, and they put the Marines in the full retreat and everybody starts running away from the forward base there. Um, and then in our story. Yeah, that's very similar yeah, I mean, it's very similar to the 2005 version because there's there's all of the in the 53 are they they're like hovering ships, aren't they? They're yeah. not like they don't have legs. No, there's no legs. They opted not to do that in this film. So they're hovering uh levitating ships that move across the landscape. And just have like that, that rotating head thing with the Yeah, shoots. that long neck and yeah. that that little thing that shoots a death ray from the top of it. Yeah. Yeah. And they have so these think, little two arms on both sides that shoot out lasers too. Right. So very devastating. <laughs> and as the, as the, as the Marines fire back on them, you see that there's this force field built around these ships that they can't be touched. Same in the, the 2005 version. Yep. 
So in the 53 version, once that's established, you know, basically <laughs> our, our hero, the doctor, Clayton Forrester and, and Sylvia, um, they uh, get into an airplane, a spotter plane, and the doc takes it up into the air and, and tries to fly away. But they end up crash landing at an abandoned farmhouse. So mm-hmm. that's where the story takes it from there. So to pick up from the 2005 version, in this version, the tripod rises out of the ground. The uh, the body shape is very similar to the 53 design of the ships. It just it's on legs. Um, it has those sidearms as well that it's shooting. You just hear the powering up, and then all of a sudden, just people start just getting disintegrated, turning to dust. And uh, the main character, Tom Cruise, he's running away, and people are just disintegrating around him. He finally gets home. He's just covered in ash, basically. I don't know if this is even mentioned in the 53 version, but there's like, there's no power to any of the vehicles, like all electronics, like a massive EMP burst. The only thing in 53 that was similar is that everyone's watch is stopped. Okay. Um, There was some sort of magnetic field that was put out. Gotcha. Um, So I guess I think that's the difference in in technology. Yeah. I was going to say like 2005, that's a little bit more of a a common and present thing for us is to have electronics but he does reference his watch at one point so maybe that's a little homage Mm. to the 53 Mm -hmm. version um they finally get to their the kid's mother's house or uh, her mother-in-law's house no one's there they were going on a a trip somewhere they're sleeping later that night and all of a sudden there's this huge explosion outside they think that the, the tripods have followed them there they wake up and it's this giant plane has just crashed in this neighborhood just feet from the house totally obliterating the house that they were just in because they went downstairs into the basement so they're coming out the front door to basically where the living room was and is now out outside um and he meets these news reporters who that's when he discovers that there's more of these he thinks there's only just like the one or two and they explain to him that it's happening all over the world well, in, in the in the fifty three version, they they crash land the spotter plane at a farmhouse, and then they get out. And um, there's a moment where the two characters start to you know show that they're really relying on each other for survival, and they start to have a closer and closer relationship as they're there. Um, and then just then they're buried. The house is buried almost by another crashing cylinder. So it's kind of like what you said about the airplane crash. Interesting. Um, so the cylinder comes down, boom, and crashes into it. But it's an alien. It is an alien uh, mm. landing craft. And so this is the scene in this film in 53 where they first see the alien for what it is. Um, oh, okay. And that's kind of a creepy, you know, shot in that way in the 50s, especially, right? The the genre of the filmmaking then of the shadows and the music change. And mm. you don't quite see it, right? And it's just something's there. And they end up in this basement of this home hiding essentially and then this long cable with that electronic eye that we were talking about mm-hmm. this is a smaller version of what was on the ship it's just kind of moving and exploring the house and they're trying to hide from it in the basement yeah that's very almost exactly to what it's like in the in the 2005 version as well uh it's some it happens a little bit later but there's this front line of of Humvees and military vehicles attacking the tripods and his son wants to go see what's going on like he wants his like retribution like getting back at him so he wants to join because there's this caravan of military vehicles Mm. driving by at one point in the movie and he's like let me on let me on no one's stopping 
Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, they they get to this front line. He runs up the hill to to go see, and the dad chases after him and is trying to stop him. He's like, you, "We've got it. You've got to help me take care of your sister. She's down the hill a little ways, just waiting for the dad to come back." And another family is running away, sees this little girl by herself, and is like, "Is your dad here? Is your family here?" It's like, "Yeah, he's he's just up there." It's like, "Girl, you can't stay here. You got to come with us." It's like, "No, my daddy. I'm waiting for my dad. He'll come." He sees that something's going on with his daughter and he needs to go take care of her. And so he realizes he just has to let go of his son and let him do his thing. And what he's, in his own mind, is letting his son go die, basically, because there's no way that we can fight back in his mind. And as soon as that happens, he's, the son breaches the, the hill, crests the hill. He grabs his daughter and they run towards this house. Um... And he turns back and there's this huge fireball explosion, vehicles on flames rolling down the hill, and he thinks his son is dead. So it's just him and his daughter now, and they are running past this house, and this guy, turns out his name is Ogilvy, which is the main character who discovers in the book um, the asteroid, the one that sees the asteroid for the first time, discovers the lid rotating and all that. That character is Ogilvy in the novel. And this deranged old guy in the movie is is now Ogilvy, and he is the one that's like, we will tunnel underground just like they were, and the only way to get them is to come, and, come out from underneath just like they did. But we realize that this guy is very unstable, yeah. <laughs> and he calls them over, and they're, they're hiding with him, and it's while they're with this guy in his house while he's digging a tunnel, his plan is to dig tunnels all over the world. I don't know how well he thought that plan through. But uh, that's his plan. It's So it's while we're at this house that the aliens make their first appearance. We see what they look like. Uh-huh. And that, like you said, that snaking arm thing with the, the probe on the end yeah. is exploring through the house. So very, in some ways, similar as yeah. far as like the alien technology and, and how they present it. So do they ever show the aliens in the 53 version? And so what do they look like? Yeah, they get to it. So. Well, that, that thing is this probing through the basement. The Dr. Forrester cuts it off with an axe. So he slices okay. it with an axe. And then it's not long after that they know that something else is in the house. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Because, so real quick. So Ogilvy, the old, the deranged dude, is he wants to cut the thing with an axe. He grabs an axe off the wall and is about to like chop it in half. And like Tom Cruise is like, no. Don't do it. Like I've got my kid here. It's they're they're gonna send other things down here to get us. Don't cut the head off. So it's interesting. Like well, they kind of reference that as well. But then don't do it. Well, so yeah, in this film they do. And what do you think happens? But yes, there's something else in the house suddenly, and it's one of the Martian <laughs> enters the house, and they kind of catch a glimpse through it. So some of the the wall is pushed away and broken, you know. And so they catch this glimpse of this like creature that has really no head to speak of but it has these broad mm. shoulders and the, and the head kind of sits inset inside the shoulders and has these really like six foot long arms with these tentacle suction oh. cup fingers is what you see. You never see the, the bottom half of the creature, but it moves really fast. And so that's what they kind of huh. catch. And then there's a scene where, you know, Sylvia, the female uh, is, you know, she's, she's standing there and she's frightened. Of course, you know, the whole thing is building up that way. And this hand, the three tentacle hand just comes up on her shoulder. Dunk. 
Mm. And then the doctor then takes the same ax and cuts the arm off. <laughs> so, um, and then he collects the blood. With classic the style. Yeah. Classic. Um, and they escape and they run out and escape from the farmhouse. Um, well, then it's, the farmhouse is totally obliterated at that point, just destroyed. The alien zips off at like a thousand miles an hour screaming. And then the, 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 they run out and the house gets destroyed. And, uh, huh. and then the Dr. Forrester picks up, you know, he has the blood on the cloth and he picks up the electronic eye that was on that long, uh, mm-hmm. you know, cable. He picks that up too. And then they, they leave that area and they head out and that's where they go to is the next scene. So are they, at this point, is there any, have we seen the plant matter, the red no. plant matter that there's they are no, forming? So that's not seen yet. No, there's not seen and. And I don't believe it's in this film at all. There isn't any real reference to the red green, the red algae thing that was happening. Interesting. Yeah. Well, do you remember that being in the book? I don't remember it being in the book. It was a long time ago when I read it, but it could have very well been, certainly. Interesting. Actually, before that happens, they noticed all this plant matter um, Mm. growing in through this, this basement. And they look out the window and they see the, one of the tripods, pull they have the, they have these baskets that they carry underneath the tripods that they store people in mm. almost like fuel for later food for later they grab the one of the arms grabs it out uh, grabs a person out lays them down on the ground and this arm with a needle jabs into them and it's like it's pulling all of the blood out of the body and then it just gets sprayed out like they're using our blood to farm mm. the earth this this plant matter and that's when Ogilvy, he sees that and he's like, they're farming us, they're farming us. Goes crazy. Like, I'm not going to let them take me alive. Tom Cruise realizes that he's a danger to his daughter. And this, it's, it's an interesting dynamic that we've got a father and his daughter and you've got a man and a well, love interest, yep. I'm guessing. Yep. So there's, I feel like there's a little bit more, some of the scenes are a little bit more intense because it, it's centered around a helpless child. Mm-hmm. Versus two adults. Um, so that might be a, a good change between mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the 53 and, yep. and 05 version. Um, and what the aliens look like, because they come through walking through the house, they're a little bit shorter. They've got long, longer arms, but only like one leg. So they're tripods as well. So similar design in, in the ship to, to their anatomy. They've got... Uh, so you've seen uh, Independence Day, right? Oh yeah. So you remember how the the aliens had? They've got that like diamond or mm-hmm. triangle shaped like crest oh, yeah. coming kind of off of their head. Yeah, yeah. They look very similar to that. It's a little bit smaller, but so similar in fashion to that. But just the 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 two arms and and the leg and the mm-hmm. walk around. And there was one point, um, one trivia point that is made during that moment. Let's see if I can find it real quick. So when the aliens are investigating the junk in the basement, uh, one of them plays with a bicycle wheel. And this is a reference to the original book. The main character observes that with all the advanced technology the aliens possess, they do not use any wheels. And the point is made, they wonders if the alien life form had skipped over the invention of the wheel. <laughs> so when they see the wheel, they're like, oh, what is this? I've never seen this before. <laughs> so it so is an interesting point that yeah. they made to the book. Of that observation. Oh, neat. Um, well, just as a note, quick, I think back in the book, the the aliens were tentacle armed 
octopus kind of looking creatures with a head with two eyes and a mouth sort of creatures too. So this this idea of these tentacles and all this seems to be a, a running thread as far as how the creatures look, you know, as far as the look. So it sounds like the 53 design was a little bit closer to the original Con, it could have book been. They never showed the, the bottom half of the creature. And some of that had to do with the special effects yeah. they had to do. And it was a rush job to get it done. In fact, in the film, as they sure. were putting it together, they had an alien creature built and they brought it to set. And George Powell said, uh, no, it's way too big. We got to change that. And over one night, the special effects artist and his daughter worked on it overnight and developed what the alien creature came to be in the 1953 film out of like chicken wire and wrappings and all sorts of stuff. And they brought it on set and it was very fragile. I mean, if it fell over, it would have broken, cracked. And there's a scene in there where you can, (laughs) they said you can actually almost see the, the wrappings coming off of the arms. I mean, that's, that's how (laughs) rushed that was to get that together. And, And they had these little blow, uh, tubes in there where offset a puppeteer would would blow into these tubes and that would cause the veins to open up and close on the skin so it gave it some life just really neat thinking out of the box yeah yeah Yeah. you know live you know visual effects on screen right you know living effects you know but um yeah yeah so that's how they, they put that together um so in the 53 film uh once they run away from the home um and remember he has the blood and he has the the eye he takes it to a Pacific Tech mm-hmm. team um, where they go over the sample and try to find a way to defeat them. And in that, the scientists discover that the Martian eye, uh, how it works, like a television, essentially, mm-hmm. right? It's got all yeah. three colors and how it can see. And they also know that the blood is anemic in the creature. So that's what they find out. And they decide to um, do some more study on how they could defeat the creatures, knowing how they see and what their blood is made of. But while that's happening, the world starts to fall silent. So the capitals of the world, there's there's no more word, radio, contact coming from anywhere. You know, Paris falls quiet. London falls silent. Yeah. You know, Moscow is no longer on the map, you know, and it gets to be more and more that the aliens or the Martians are winning this whole thing. So the U.S. government decides we're going to drop an atomic bomb on the original group of Martian war machines and see if it does anything. So they decide to okay. do that. That's like their next big move. And as they do that, huh. um, it's kind of reminiscent to me about even Independence Day. What do they decide to do but drop yeah. a bomb, right? On LA, I think it was, right? Gonna nuke them. Just, they got to nuke yeah. them to see how it's done. And that, that is, so that's an interesting uh, takeover. That's how you uh, fix everything. That's apparently. <laughs> and of course, back in 53, right? Atomic age is a big thing. You know, yeah. we had World War II. Atomic bombs were, you know, we we're living in the Cold War. So that was the thing. So that was the ultimate but as it turns out, the atomic blast has no effect and the aliens yeah. continue their move. That is interesting. That is very similar to Independence Day. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's kind of how these early science fiction novels and movies kind of paved the landscape for how science fiction novels and books and movies would be made decades later. Yeah. And how they've not really changed that much from that original kind of uh, algorithm, I guess. Right. You could say. In, in a way, uh, Independence you, Day like, could be called Independence Day, War of the Worlds. It could be the same right. kind of thing. Yeah. Exactly. It's <laughs> aliens came to Earth. They destroyed the Earth. They when you, and they had a okay. So Independence Day, they had to put a virus. 
they had to upload yeah, a virus upload a virus into, into the, ship. the ship right right so that the <laughs> the bubble the force field could be right. uh, removed a and they could finally virus. attack it exact same thing yeah. yep exactly computer virus but in this case it's a an art it's an organic yeah. virus yeah from earth that humans were able to get an immunity to but then they arrive and then bam they get sick yeah and that's what happens in the 05 version is that they realize that some of them are starting to just act erratic and fall over and just die or blow up and they're not sure what's going on they're like okay this is weird but sweet (laughs) not sure what's going on and uh at one point Tom Cruise like looks and he there's another tripod walking. People are are freaking out and running towards this tunnel in the ground, this overpass. And he's looking back and he notices the birds mm. are landing on it mm. and sitting on it. And he yells to one of the military people and he's like, "Look, look at the bird, the birds." And he's like, "What?" Because it's really loud and they can't hear anything. He's like, "The birds!" Finally gets them to look and. He recognizes what's going on, and they tell him to sh- shoot a, I don't know, those like javelin rockets or something at 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 it, and they're able to take it down. And it kind of goes on, and that it yeah it explains how they were able to come to Earth and all of their power and strength and, and ingenuity and science, and yet the smallest tiny little bacteria took them down from the inside, basically. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. A side note about that scene you just described it was filmed i know where it was filmed it was filmed in naugatuck connecticut yeah you've got a little story about in that Kim valley you? yeah that that uh so when the the scout was coming through to they were scouting locations in new england you know uh to try to figure out a good place to you know to have a river you know for that scene in that film where all the bodies are going down and you know where do we have anyway he's doing the scout thing well it happened to be that the mayor of naugatuck uh with an aide would happen to notice this guy down by the river and they got chatting about whatever and the guy said, yeah, I'm scouting for a film. And he goes, well, let me take you here. And he took him to a, a chemical <laughs> factory and a, like an old timey, you know, uh, Nagasa chemical, Nagasa chemical, which is an old timey factory, you know, red brick, everything you see in the movie in the 2005 film. And he goes, what do you think of this place? And he's like, I think this would work. And so <laughs> they were able to not only get the Nagasa river is where those, you know, in, in real life is where it was filmed down by Beacon Falls. Um, but they were able to get the site for that scene you're speaking to where they, you know, they CGI'd in the, the creature, of course, and, you know, the tower, you know, the the uh, tower stack falls over and all that. But the building is actually there. So they filmed yeah. it there. And at that time, I was I was working uh, local in the studio and I had a chance to go down and, and kind of do a story on the story. You know, we got to go on set and see a lot of the cars being yanked around and all that on wiring and cables and stuff like that. And, you know, Tom Cruise really was in cool. town. And, yeah, it was kind of an interesting uh to be around that for a few days. Um, so that's how that worked out, but they kind of made it in the film feel like it was actually Boston the whole time. Right. Um, yeah. But that's how that worked out, you know, and I think it was the 10th mountain national guard unit that was featured in that film too. the actual guardsmen that were part of that running around and giving orders and all that sort of stuff, you know, which was interesting and nice, mm. a nice uh, there. And, and that's how that was done. And a funny story about that river. So that scene in, in the 2005 yeah. film, you know, they have all these bodies going down the river and stuff, you know, really poignant, you know, they stand there and they can't believe what they're seeing. Well, again, that's a real river, uh, the Naugatuck River down by Beacon Falls in Connecticut. And uh, days later, uh, the local PD in real life got a call that there was a body in the river washed up on shore. 
So they went down like a, mm. you know, it was a big thing. It was one of the dummies, man. They just got away from everybody. So, <laughs> you know, everybody's letting the lookout for dummies floating down the river after the film was done. But uh, yeah, that's the props guys. Like one, two, what? three. Yeah. Uh, we're just missing, we're just missing one. One Nothing will come of them. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's, that's that happened. <laughs> Panic ensues yet again. <laughs> right. It's, it keeps going. So in the 53 film, you know, the atomic blast doesn't do anything. And the aliens advance, advance on Los Angeles, right? So the city's evacuated. Um, now it's Battle Los Angeles, which is another alien film uh, that you may have seen with the Marines, right? I don't know if you saw Battle Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, yeah. So now the city's being evacuated. And then the, these guys from Pacific Tech, which again are those scientists trying to figure it out, they're stopped by a mob who wants to escape and they destroy you know, scientific equipment. They throw the guys out of the truck. They take their stuff. So eventually what you have are the scientists separated from everybody with nothing and just ensuing chaos in the streets. And they're just watching humanity mm. do the worst of humanity trying to escape and while well, the aliens approach. So the Doc Forrester is separated from Sylvia, the love interest in the movie. And so they're in his deserted Los Angeles. So, uh, and based on a story that he told, uh, that she told him earlier, he says, ah, I think she's going to take refuge in a church somewhere. She's going to try to find sanctuary in a church somewhere. So he starts looking around and after searching through several churches, he finds her among survivors that are praying for for salvation. They're praying for protection. And uh, mm. he finds her, he gets into the church and he's with her. And just as the aliens start to attack on that church, the machines lose power and crash one after the other. And that's, that's how awesome. that goes. And then Doc Forrester actually sees one of the doors opening. Like it's a really cool scene where the door just kind of opens and this long arm just kind of crawls out of the door and just stops. And he walks up to it. And that's when the narrator continues and finishes the film by saying after anything that men had could do had failed, they were destroyed and humanity was saved by the littlest things, which God in his yeah. wisdom had put upon the earth, referencing the microorganisms. And that's how the movie ends. Like there's this new, and the church bells ring and everything at the end of this film, right? And there's like this new humanity, this like, we, we are a new earth, you know, which in a way is kind of like Independence Day when all the, <laughs> when all the ships crash, right? <laughs> Yay, we're together. Yep. There's a new earth. There's a new possibility. And I think the same could have been said for the 2005 film when they all yeah. stopped. You know, there's this lease on life. Like we whew, just made it kind of feeling, yeah. you know? And it feels like that that happens to us every time we've we get something taken away, like freedom during wartime. We get our freedom taken away. We get our 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 security taken away. Um some just disaster is happening, and all of a sudden we get this rebirth of of newfound freedom or newfound this cyclical pattern that happens of death and rebirth and death and rebirth not only physically but just emotionally and mentally and psychologically that we as humans kind of go through yeah yeah no it's very true you mentioned at the at the end of the 53 movie that after one of the ships crashes the doors open and this long tentacle arm comes out and then Mm-hmm. dies well steven spielberg he homaged to that very scene as well in the 2005 version so after they took out that ship and when he pointed out you know the birds the birds they shot it down and it crashed and landed and everyone's kind of gathering around it to look at this spaceship and the door opens slowly opens and out crawls this alien creature reaches out an arm 
<laughs> and then just dies. Um, mm. So it's very, very similar visuals to the 53 version and the 05 version. But it goes on after that. He finally, Tom Cruise and his daughter, they go, um, they obviously escaped from the tripod, <laughs> uh, go back to, I think, her in-law's house. They've been making their way there this whole time. Finally show up. The mother opens the door comes running out in tears and, and crying like all oh, her babies her, her baby's alive and everyone's okay and then he Tom Cruise looks at the front door of the house and out walks his son he mm. had somehow survived and they give each other a big hug and it's like it's his it was his his son was kind of like this bratty teenage kid before whenever they first showed up at the house in the beginning of the movie and now here at the end it feels like like two men hugging each other um with like mutual respect and understanding for each other um so it's mm -hmm. an interesting beautiful moment there as well so yeah there's interesting correlations and, and comparisons some of the both versions of the 53 movie and the 05 compare or um pull a lot from the novel and also play off of yeah. each other, more so the 05 to the 53, of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like a, a lot of homages in the 05 to the 53, that seems to be something that Steven Spielberg does a lot. He's, he pays respect to those who have come before in the work that he does, which is yeah. which is nice and, and, and interesting to see. Um, but I don't know how the 53 version did like box office wise in theaters when it came out, you may have some information on that. Yeah, no, it did. It did. All right. It, it had the critical acclaim at the time. Um, it had a premiere in February of 1953. Um, it was a critical and box office success. Actually, it, it accrued $2 million in a distributed domestic release um, and rentals. A whole um, $2 million. Yeah. Um, that's crazy <laughs> i don't know so what it that... was a big it was a big science fiction remember it's 1953 it was sure, a big I... science fiction hit yeah what's uh, do you know what that <laughs> comparison is to like two million dollars then i don't know now? today's numbers no okay. no i don't know like for uh inflation um, yeah right <laughs> um now and the other thing is that the war of the worlds it won an academy award for special effects okay um nominated for uh was everett douglas was nominated for film editing paramount studio sound department was nominated for sound recording mm. and uh, at the film review um even on rotten tomatoes it has an 89 percent rating based on 35 critics wow. today just 35 so though it's dated they actually rotten tomatoes says though it's dated in spots the world of return war of the worlds retains an unnerving power mm. updating hg wells classic sci-fi tale to a cold war era um so it's kind of, you know, holds true to that. Yeah. Um, and then the legacy of it all, right? I mean, it was uh, actually uh, significant in 2011. The United States Congress, Library of Congress, was selected for, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. Hmm. Um, so they noted that during the Cold War years that was released um, and how it used the uh, apocalyptic paranoia of the atomic age hmm. as its idea. Uh, they noted the film special effects and that the release at the time was soul chilling, hackle raising, mm. and not for the faint of heart. <laughs> so, you know, back in the day, 
It's also been ranked as one of the 27th best villains, the Martians in War of the Worlds oh, 53 was is ranked one of the 27th best villains in the American Film Institute of 100 years of heroes and villains. So that's kind of a neat idea. <laughs> well, it's and then of course certainly set the stage for so many films to come after it. Yeah. So 1988, we had War of the Worlds TV series, which is based, uh, is a sequel to the Pal to the film by yes. George Powell. Yeah. And in fact, two of the actors reprised their roles in that. Oh, that's um, cool. The, the doctor and the, and the girl, Sylvia, reprised their roles in that film. Oh, cool. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then we have the 2005 um, uh, direct-to-DVD was released of War of the Worlds. Uh, which has some references to George Powell's version. Hmm. And then you have Steven Spielberg's, right? War of the Worlds 2005. Yep. Um, they even say that the creator of Space Invaders, the video game, was inspired by War of the Worlds 1953 version and is so designed much. of the aliens. That's crazy. Yeah. And then Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> uh, they named one of their lead characters, the mad scientist, Dr. Clayton Forrester. Oh, wow. That's the name of the doctor in the 1953 film. Um. And so it's got quite a, quite a thing. And it also really pushed the envelope for sci-fi. Yeah. Um, you know, we weren't making, and you know, 1953, we're talking about the beginning of the space race, right. And rocketry, atomic energy, the atomic age, all that stuff was still coming to be, you know, UFOs yeah. and aliens. And, you know, so it really pushed the envelope into the, into that genre, which yeah. end up all these other things we have going on. Right. I mean, so it was yeah, always, that's quite a legacy. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And and to that point is I was actually um talking to a a comic book editor today, actually, and I mentioned that we were talking about War of the Worlds, and he said that he basically taught himself how to read by reading the War of the Worlds from H. G. Wells and how that was just yeah. a big part of yeah. his life growing up. He loves comics, right. obviously. <laughs> And science fiction yeah. is a huge passion of his and how just the world of worlds was a huge influence on him growing up as well. So the 2005 yeah, it, just, it movie, goes to show you. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just say it goes to show you that, you know, a book written in the 1890s has, you know, there's staying power to that. I mean, yeah. a lot of narratives, if they're told well, have can last for centuries. And that's you know, the, the point. The story right? is there. It's all about yep. story. Like, how do you tell a good story? It's what all about story? And that's a question. Is like, what about these two movies? One of the question will be, would you rewatch the '53 version, or would I watch the 2005 version? Like, what's the rewatchability of these movies? And also, yeah, the, rereadability yeah. of the novel. So, what's so? Go ahead. Would you rewatch '53 again? Oh, yeah. No, you know, it's a good Saturday afternoon, you know, kind of sit back, bubblegum kind of cinematic, you know, foray into an old film. You know what I mean? Looking it's just for got, a classic just, alien movie. Yeah, looking, when you're looking for that classic, you know, it's like, yeah, there's there's not, there's definitely a watchability to it. You know, it's like, yeah, you you know, and I remember being a kid, my my dad liked that film. And that's how I first saw it when I was a, a little kid, you know, mm. and obviously way after <laughs> my dad watched it. You know, and he's like, hey, check this out on a Saturday afternoon. You know, it's one of those films, you know, yeah. just kind of rerunning. And I'm like, wow, this is really neat, especially as a kid, you know. And uh, now it's just great. It's good storytelling. It's still solid. It's still humanity versus the something else kind of yeah. idea. And the narrative is there. And, you know, the whole thing is written in. And yeah, it could be remade a thousand billion times, this idea. And it has been remade yeah. a thousand billion times. It feels like, But even in the littlest of ways. 
And so it, it just harkens back to the human experience. Yeah. What happens, Caleb, if suddenly we find out tonight that something has happened and the earth is being invaded? Yeah. It's that question you ask yourself, like, what, what do we do as a humanity? What do we do as our stuff? How do we respond? Right. It's that, you know, so it's, it's just kind of a neat thing. And, and you could see back in 1938 with Orson Welles, man, when he broadcasted it on the radio, the effect was immediate and dramatic. Yeah. You know, and uh, it shows you the power of it all. <laughs> Extreme, yeah. So, with your experience in filmmaking um, and having done a book report on on the book back in the day, and then also watched the movies, what makes it rewatchable for you? What makes a movie, for one, what makes a movie rewatchable? But this one specifically, what about it makes you want to co- keep coming back to it? And watch it again. Is it the? I'd say that's a good question. I'd say it's like an old friend. To me, there's a nostalgia to it because I watched it with my dad, and you know, to see it now as a filmmaker, to see it, you know, looking at it differently, and then watching it again for fun. Like I'm not tearing it apart, looking at it, trying to figure out how it was done or framing it and whatever, you know. Because there's a thing that happens with us, Caleb, right? As filmmakers, is that we don't see the world exactly the same way as everybody else. We we have that television or film lens eye where we see it things differently right we're looking for things motion vectors and we're looking for moments we're looking for the angles we're looking for shot what would be a better shot what would be a better angle on whatever in our photography and is in our in our artwork right we but we're just trained up that way so it's nice to watch a film and just go i'm just gonna sit here and watch a film and that's okay you know what i mean so I, I feel like there's yeah. that makes it watchable again, of course, and the nostalgia of it all, and then the idea of it all. And, you know, I, I, I'm a fan of, you know, a huge fan of contemporary filmmaking, of course, absolutely look forward to the future, the way it's being done. But there's something to be foundationally set in the old timey yeah. way of telling movies and sh- watching films like Casablanca and, you know, um, War of the Worlds or The Time Machine. And then, you know, whatever it is, whether H.G. Wells or Jules Verne stories, what. what there's something about going back into those books and reading that narrative and saying, yeah, that's still powerful stuff, right? Yeah. That's still tellable. It's like not letting yeah. yourself get into that mindset of just because it's old, it's going to be bad. Oh, no. Very right? much I mean, the opposite. I just say William Shakespeare. Yeah. I bet a lot of your listeners know who that is. And uh <laughs> hope so. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, I hope so. Um, Otherwise, read a book. Um, No, it's just like. You, you just gotta, you know, there's, there's certain narratives in the human heart that don't, that don't change, yeah. you know, uh, that the, the, the cry for wanting to be loved, the finding a home, uh, the, you know, the idea of vengeance, the idea of overcoming the odds. Uh, these are all human emotions and experiences, right? Yeah. And uh, if you can capture that, um, then that's the stuff that resonates, right? It's heart centered. It's, and I've always been a fan of heart centered storytelling, the, the real, what is the story, right? That's why we love behind the scenes stuff too. What's the story behind the story? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I think read a, watchability and readability, I'll go back to that thing. Sometimes I'm sure you feel this way and your, your listeners do too. There's, there's certain movies or books. It's like hanging out with an old friend and uh, just enjoying the company, you know? It's, yeah, especially and some people, they don't like to rewatch a movie over again. And some movies don't have that effect. Some There are some movies that are fantastic movies that I've watched that I wouldn't want to watch again. 
just because it pulls out a certain emotion that I don't want to necessarily experience mm. in that moment. Yeah. Um, sure. Nothing wrong with the movie. Almost like it's a credit to the movie that it did its job so well. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's just certain films like Star Wars or Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. They're just these these movies that you just, they feel good and exciting to watch over and over again. For me, at least. Yeah. Um, and I haven't seen the, the 53 version. I, I will. Um, but having watched the 05 version, it is definitely an entertaining film. It's probably not going to be one where I'm going to say, you know, it's not going to happen very often where like, I want to watch this movie. It'll happen maybe on occasion. But for me, that's how I feel about, about that one. Yeah. Um, and I feel like based on the box office, it's like 6.5 out of 10 stars on IMDb. The budget for it was 132 million. And then the opening weekend, it only made 64 million back. But mm. gross worldwide, it made over $603 million. So it definitely made its money back. So people did eventually go and watch it, especially in different markets and different places in the world. But yeah, just some mm-hmm. something about its opening weekend did not do very, very well. I think certain people were expecting something and that's not what they received. There were maybe too many differences to them from what the original content was. Um, not that it was bad. They just could maybe see past those differences. I don't know. That's my opinion. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I I compared the 2005 film when I saw it to my the 1953 version, which is the only one I knew. Yeah. So when I saw the 2005 version, it was interesting to me. I mean, it was contemporarily told, right? It was yeah. done well, acted well, shot well, all that stuff's great. CGI, blah blah blah. You know, and having been on the film set for a few days, you know, and all that, it's just great, right? It's just fun. And but I was thinking back to that 53 film. That's the only version I knew in film. You know, so I'm like, oh, that's different. Oh, that's different. Oh, that's different. Oh, that's the same. You know, so yeah. it's. We have a tendency to do that too, you know. Was were like certain things that mattered different, or were they the same? And was it? Did you like one change over the other when you watched the two? I think they're just different, you know. Okay. Um, as you point out, the contemporary film, the two thousand five film, I should say, you know, was more about a father and his children, which yeah. is different than a love interest in a way, right? There's a different, different thing going on there, there. The, yeah. And it's a little bit more, there's a little more depth to the character mm-hmm. that they did in 2005 because, it, you know, tried to make it feel like this is, you know, it's real life. This is where we are. How would our world react in 2005 to an alien invasion? A little bit more of a character. Where you have more. the, yeah. And then 53 was how would the world react in 1953 to an alien invasion? I'd be curious to find out from someone from 1953 <laughs> what they thought of that yeah. film, you know? Yeah. And um and it would have been interesting to see what they thought. Yeah. So that, that would be another great conversation to have. And it's just a matter of, they were just different. And, you know, the, the 2005 film definitely went more into the um, horror aspect of it, I guess, mm. than the 53 film. The 1953 film was, you know, at the time spine tingling and it has its moment, you know, the basement moment was really well done for that yeah. kind of a film, you know, in that, that time period. Um but it didn't go into the gore necessarily that the 2005 film went into, right. With, you know, the, the terraforming using yeah. human beings. Yeah. Didn't have that element, you know? So that brings it to a different, different element. Gotcha. 
Cool. Well, hey, Ken, thank you so much for joining me today on this episode of Reader Watch about The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Based on how we've been talking about these different episodes, I would encourage uh, you listeners to check out both movies, read the book either on your own or follow along on Audio Face as we go through uh, the book in a dramatic and, and exciting, exciting way. Uh, but thank you for joining us today. And Ken, once again, thank you for joining and I look forward to having you back again uh, for another episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining. Caleb, thank you. Thank you, everyone. Watch the skies. Eyes up. Thank you for listening to Reader Watch, an audio face podcast. And by clicking the follow button, it's you as a listener reaching out to us and saying, hey, we like what you're doing. Plus, it helps the channel. And we really appreciate that. Make sure to hit the bell icon to be notified of new releases every Monday. And also, join our Instagram community at Audio Face Podcast to get notified of upcoming releases as well as access to bonus content. Make sure to join us next Monday for an all-new episode. You're listening to Audio Face.